0: Let's read from God's Word now before we pray, Um, and we're in Philippians chapter 2 this week and God willing next week. Tonight is 12 to 18 is our study, but let's read right from verse 1, this great passage about the humility, the humiliation of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus, and then the passage tonight from verse 12 on. Let's hear the Word of God than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Therefore, Christ exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked, and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad And rejoice with me. And we end our reading there. We thank God for this, uh, his word to us.
1: Good evening. If you have your Bible, open up with me again to to Philippians chapter 2. Now, it's been something I have really enjoyed about our Sunday evenings together. Has been going through this shorter catechism. Uh, Back when I was younger in Sunday school, we would have learned the catechism. Every week we were set a question from it. You went home and you're meant to learn that over the week. Typically you learned it on Saturday night or very rushed on Sunday morning. And you come in the next Sunday and well, if you said your catechism right, you were given a wee sweet. So I have my sweets with me tonight. There will be a quiz. You can come see me afterwards. If you get your catechism right, you may get a sweet. Of course, it would be too easy to just ask you tonight's catechism, wouldn't it? So we're going to make it hard. We're going to go back two weeks. Question 35, if anyone can think off the top of the head what that was. How well have you been listening? I suppose if you weren't here two weeks ago, we have an excuse. But for the rest of you, if you know question 35, come see me afterwards. I'll refresh your memory. It asks, what is sanctification? What is sanctification? This great big word. And the answer, sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which our whole person is made new after the image of God. And so we are more and more able to die to sin and live to righteousness. I'll just read that again for us. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace by which our whole person is made new after the image of God, and so we are more and more able to die to sin and live to righteousness. Remember that. Come see me. You might get a sweet. But the last few questions in the catechism have been looking at the benefits Christians uh, participate in when they rest in Jesus Christ, when they receive him and rest in him as Saviour and as Lord. Tonight we came to think about the benefits of of when we die, but there's benefits for us as we live. We thought about them over the last few weeks. In some big words, but hopefully the catechism has helped us to understand them. Justification and adoption. That's a, a change of status, something instant, something definitive. Once we stood condemned under sin, now we stand free in Christ. Once we were without God and without hope in the world, now we stand as the sons and daughters of God. They are both acts of God's free grace. But with sanctification, we read something different in the Catechism. We're told that it was a work of God's free grace. And that was to tell us it's something ongoing, an ongoing process. It's a process in which we grow in holiness. Tonight, as we looked at that question 37, it told us that when we die, our souls are made perfect. Now, in this life, we're not made perfect but we're not saved in order to just stand still. We're saved that we might grow in holiness, grow in our likeness to Christ. And that's really what this word sanctification means. It talks about dying to sin and living to righteousness. Now you know yourself, if you're, you're maybe trying to lose a bit of weight, It's one thing to cut out all the junk food to stop eating that. But you also need to start eating the right food as well, don't you? And that's why I'm not actually going to share my sweets because I care about you. It's also a long drive back to Kilkeel. (laughs) But that's the thing, isn't it? You, You eat a good breakfast or a good lunch, you fill up on the right stuff and you shouldn't need to snack throughout the day. That maybe gives us a picture of what sanctification is. It's a growing in holiness, a growing to be like Christ. It's not a change in our behavior. It's not just merely moral improvement or being good living, but it is growing to be like Christ, our Savior. It's God's work in us, it's the work of His Spirit, the work of His grace. We see tonight that it's for God's good pleasure, but it's also for our good. And so we want to think about sanctification by looking here in Philippians 2. We're really going to think about three things about sanctification. First, we want to say that sanctification is our essential work. Sanctification is our essential work. Secondly, sanctification empowers our witness. Sanctification empowers our witness as we live for Christ in this world. And thirdly and finally, sanctification enhances our worship as we live and worship our Saviour and King. So we begin then with our essential work as we turn our attention to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. And we notice there in verse 12, Paul begins, Therefore, and of course whenever we see the word therefore we know there's a a logical connection to what has just come before and if we look at those previous verses those that we thought about last week together we see they're all about christ aren't they and there's this wonderful thing here where the, the clue is in the name if you are a christian there is a connection to christ that you are in christ and his spirit is in you and what we see about christ here well it's really what we might call the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. Again, going back to the language of the catechism, you might remember that from a few weeks ago as well. But it shows us Christ's humiliation, where he lays aside his glory, enters into this world, not born in a palace, but in a stable and laid in a manger, not into wealth and riches, but into poverty. How he lives in perfect obedience to his Father and yet is despised and rejected and mocked and betrayed even sent to the cross and to die the most brutal death, really deserving of a criminal. And that is Christ's humiliation. And yet it doesn't end there for we have an exalted Christ that he is risen, ascended on high, seated at the right hand of his father and that one day before him every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That is our savior. That's who Paul's just been telling us about and he's telling us that who Jesus is has a connection. If you're a Christian, to how you then live your life. there's really two ways for that. In his humiliation, Christ's willing obedience to his Father. And we ought to obey God as Christ obeyed his Father. And in his exaltation, one day we will all bow before Christ and give an account to him. We ought to remember that also, because that's why Paul's calling us to obedience here in verse 12. He calls the Philippians to obedience. And to obey, really, because we're looking back to Christ. That's the motivation for our obedience, looking to Christ and all that he has done for us. He's telling us here really that obedience follows faith. Again, we're not saved to stand still. Now, if you look there at verse 12, Paul talks about how the Philippians have done well to obey in his presence, but they need to obey much more in his absence. And isn't that always the case? It's easy to obey. It's easy to maybe do as you're told when the authority figure's there. You remember back to your days at school. I'm very conscious, my old principal's here tonight, but I was thinking during the week about one time uh, in geography, and the teacher left the room, and I don't know why, but for whatever reason, when she came back into the room, I was standing on top of my desk. So very promptly, I was then sent out of the room. But, you know, when when the cat's away, the mice will play. We think about maybe the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God, and, and what do the people do? Well, they make this golden calf and they begin to to bow down and to worship that. Maybe it's an idea that we we obey someone in order to try and impress them, almost to deceive them, to give them a sort of false impression of who we are. You know, you you look busy when the boss is coming, but once he's passed on by, you sort of ease up a wee bit. Well, Paul's calling us to obedience here. It's not obedience for the sake of ourselves, but it's obedience for God's good pleasure because God works in us for his good pleasure, and so it should be our good pleasure to work for God. And that's what he's talking about here in verses 12 and 13. We see that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now we see here how God first works in us. that's uh, uh, That's our justification, that's our adoption, that is how God saves us. And then we are to work out that salvation as he says in verse 12 and that is really the giving of evidence that god has saved us that he has worked in us it's this producing good fruit a growing in holiness a growing in likeness to christ that shows that we know christ that he is in us and we in him now people will raise an objection here they'll say well all this talk about obedience all this talk about works Aren't we saved by grace? Well, yes, of course we are. Absolutely we are. If I ever deny that, get rid of me. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. This is saying, once we've been saved, how then are we to live? Again, we're not saved to stand still. This reminds us it's God who works in us. We contribute nothing to our salvation. But God doesn't save us and then just leave us to get on with things ourselves. But we're to work out that salvation. We're to work out what God works in. We are to bring forth good fruit in our lives, evidence of what God has done for us. Scottish minister Sinclair Ferguson writes that God's grace does not destroy the individual Christian's responsibility to be obedient. Rather, it makes it possible for that obedience to become a reality in every area of life. Because we're not just doing this in our own strength, but we do it in the grace that God has given with the help of His Spirit at work in us, that we should grow, that we should bring forth this good fruit, that we're not saved by our good works, but we're saved that we might do good works. And so we can say that if somebody calls themselves a Christian, but they do not see the need or the importance of personal holiness, if they think, well, you know, I said a prayer once, that's me, God's got me covered, I I know where I'm going, but there's no fruit in their lives, we might really wonder if they are a Christian at all. Do they understand the seriousness of what Paul is talking about here? Because it is serious. He tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that tells us it's, it's not a casual thing. We shouldn't have a lax attitude towards this. But neither should we be overwhelmed and consumed by fear, living sort of treading on eggshells, thinking that, you know, one sin, one slip up, and, and that's it. God's going to be dumb with me. He's going to throw me away, just abandon me altogether. No, that's not the idea at all. Because if we look back in our Bibles to chapter one and verse six here in Philippians, Paul writes that I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that is to say that what God begins, he finishes. God doesn't abandon the work halfway through. I mean, how many times do you sit down to watch a film and you fall asleep during the middle, you never see the end. I have this just ever-growing stack of books at home. You've read the first chapter, I've maybe got halfway, I've sat it down, I think, I will come back to that. And that is a lie, because I never will. I know I shouldn't lie, but I tell myself that little lie. I'll never come back to that, that's how it is. We abandon things halfway through. We start, we don't finish. But that's not the way God is. What God begins, he will finish. He will complete the work he has begun in you. So how then are we to think of this fear and trembling? Well, one commentator calls it a reverential awe of God. And that's a great way to think about it, a reverential awe of God. That the king, the creator of all the universe, cares about our sanctification. And if it matters to him, then it should matter to us. And that this mindset it should really make our lives fertile soil in which this good fruit should grow. In which we should grow in our likeness to Christ. Again, we do it not in our own strength, but in the grace that God gives us, us in Christ and his spirit at work in us. And so we want always to be looking to Jesus and to find in him not just the motivation, but the resources we need for this growth in holiness also. And so we must remember, first of all this evening, that sanctification is our essential work, something we are all to strive after. The next two points, then, are really sort of the effects. We might even call them the rewards of this essential work. The first of these is that sanctification empowers our witness. If we look at verses 15 and 16 there, Paul calls us to shine as lights in the world, that we live in the midst of a, a crooked, untwisted generation, a world of darkness, but we are to shine as lights in that world. Why? Well, because sanctification empowers our witness that as we grow in our likeness to Christ, so too Christ shines brighter in and through us. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about someone lighting a lamp. He says you don't light that lamp to to hide it under a basket. You don't hide the light. No, you want the light to shine that, that you can see and that it will be seen. It's to say that holiness cannot be hidden even in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And that's really what our sanctification is. It's God making straight our crookedness. Now, there's always a a temptation there, isn't there, to to bend back into the ways of the world. Maybe it's just to be watching what everyone else is watching when we know it's filth that's doing us no good. Maybe it's just going along with with the workplace humor when we know that that's not for our good at all. It's not for our benefit. And really what we do is we try to, to dim the light whenever we dim the light, we damage our witness. And that's what we see going on here, but nowhere to shine bright. How do we do that? We ought to guard our hearts by knowing the times, the places, the company in which we find that temptation to to bend backwards, by looking again to Jesus and finding in him grace to help in time of need. I've been going through John's gospel in the mornings and Well, we see in John, there's a lot of talk about light and darkness. It tells us that people love the darkness and they hate the light. And what we find is that light is something that both attracts and repels people. You know yourself, if you're out in the dark at night and you see a light, well, you're going to make your way towards it. It's, It's an attractive thing. At the same time, if you're lying in bed and somebody comes in and flicks the light on, don't you pull the covers up over your face because you want to hide from that light and so that's where we find ourselves with this light as the light shines if we are growing to be like christ so christ is shining in and through us and you can be sure as a christian that just as christ faced opposition that opposition will come your way too because people love the darkness and they hate the light you find it as you are being sanctified As you grow in holiness, maybe your attitudes, your opinions, your behaviours begin to change. Maybe it is your humour, you don't laugh about the things you once did. Maybe it's the sort of words you use in conversation with others and, well, your friends notice this change and they maybe don't like it. Maybe they challenge you on it. Maybe they start spending less and less time with you as a consequence of that. Maybe we start facing some sort of opposition because of this. And it's really to be no surprise to us that we face opposition because people do not like the light it it repels them and yet the light is also wonderfully attractive in so many other ways that people are drawn to it I've been reading a, a very good book recently called dominion by actually a secular historian but a man with a great appreciation appreciation for christianity named tom holland and it's about how christianity went from being this group of the apostles really in Jerusalem to spreading all across the known world, becoming the religion of of the Roman Empire. And he says, Christianity is not like other religions. It wasn't spread by the sword. People weren't threatened to convert or be beheaded. But Christianity spread as it was so attractive in the lives of the church and the people of the church. When people looked at Christians, saw them loving God, loving their neighbor, and said there's something so wonderfully unique about them something so attractive about the way that they live, that they were drawn to it. Now, of course, it's not just how we live. Nobody is ever saved by trying to imitate a Christian. It's that personal meeting with Jesus Christ, trusting in him, believing in him. That's what saves. But if we as Christians are to be lights in this world, we want to be lights that shine the brightest for Christ. Paul tells us in verse 16 that we do that as we hold fast to the word of life and as the word of God. And of course, Jesus Christ himself, who, well, John's gospel tells us, has the words of eternal life. That's a message to the church, a message to Christians. Because there's always the temptation today to think that, well, the Bible is outdated, irrelevant. Certain parts of it are just ignorant to the world in which we live. And if we're to be relevant, if we're to be contemporary, if we're to be witnesses who reach people today, there's parts of the Bible we want to hold very loosely to. Parts of the Bible we ought to do away with, maybe altogether. And yet Paul tells us here, we shine the brightest when we hold fast to the word of life. That that's how we're relevant, is by holding fast to the word of God as we live our lives in obedience to it. We don't just want to hold fast to that word, we also want to hold forth that word. Again, nobody's saved by imitating a Christian, they're saved by knowing and believing in Jesus Christ. As they meet him through his word. And well, that's a powerful mix, isn't it? A Christian shining brightly for Christ, holding forth the word of life. Because an inconsistent evangelist is really rather a weak witness, isn't he? You know, if we profess to believe the gospel with our lips, but the attitudes of our heart or the actions in which we conduct ourselves convey a very different message, we wonder why the version of Christianity we're showing off isn't very attractive to anyone. Now, an inconsistent evangelist is a very weak witness. It won't shine brightly at all. We see then in verse 14 we might have something that serves both as a command and an example for us. To do all things without grumbling or disputing. Because we see the church in Philippi, good though it was, it certainly wasn't a perfect church, If you flick forward a page or two to chapter 4 and verse 2, we'll see there was grumbling and disputing going on in this church. Now, grumbling, disputing, we might think they're very minor things. We might think, well, everyone grumbles, you know. uh, It's not quite adultery. Disputes happen. It's not murder. These are the sort of small sins, the, the convenient sins, the sins we let ourselves off with. And yet what Paul's telling us here is that they are so damaging for our personal holiness and for the life of the church as well. Even just recently, the Belfast Telegraph had an article out, and you'll forgive the title, but it was called When All Hell Breaks Loose. And it was to do with divisions in churches, when Christians dispute among themselves, and, well, it gets to the state when churches become divided. It doesn't go unnoticed by the world, and it's a tragedy, but it's also a reality. So we're to do all things without grumbling or disputing. How can we do that? Well again by looking on to Jesus, remembering Him and His humiliation who came into this world to suffer and to die for us, to suffer the most brutal of deaths upon a cross and yet to do all things in willing obedience to His Father, to do all things without grumbling. And when we maybe compare some of our grumbles up against Jesus we realise, well the things we grumble about are usually pretty trivial actually. No, we look onto Jesus and we see something very different indeed. But Paul tells us that we're to do all things. That's a pretty broad command, isn't it? Whether it's at home or at work or here in the church. If it's our obligations, our service or even just our hobbies. But all things without grumbling or disputing. Again, it's only possible when we look onto Christ. When we rest in the grace that he has given and the power of his spirit at work. In us. And it is in and through this then that we work for his good pleasure, for God's good pleasure, that we shine brightly not for ourselves, not so people can look at us and say, Aren't they great? But we seek to shine bright for God and do all things for his good pleasure. And that's what sanctification is God working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, to will and to work in all that we think and that we do, not just a change of behaviour. The change of the heart brought around by the work of God's free grace to us in Christ Jesus. And so that is how sanctification empowers our witness. And finally then we want to think how sanctification might enhance our worship. If we look at the second half of verse 16 there, we see Paul talks about holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain really here, Paul wants the Philippians to persevere in their sanctification, to continue to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, to hold on to their faith until in the day of Christ, that final day when he returns, well, Paul will see that they have endured till then. And if they do so, he will know that he has not labored among them in vain. See, if the Philippians were to fail to work out their salvation, if they were to Fail to persevere in faith if they were to fall away, if they were to just give it all up and abandon it. Really all Paul's labors, all his work among them has been in vain. And you may be knowing what that is to have some project that you've just poured your heart and soul into. You've given all your time, your, your efforts, your money, your blood, sweat and tears and got no fruit from it, no reward whatsoever. And that's what's maybe concerning Paul here. Of course we know sanctification is for God's good pleasure but Paul's also showing us that it's for the good pleasure of our leaders as well. Maybe you're an older Christian here this evening. You've served for many years in the church. Maybe you're at the stage where you can't serve as once you did. But does it make you glad? Can you rejoice when you look around and you see maybe those younger Christians, the ones that you served for, that you poured your own heart and soul into, that you sacrificed your time, your efforts for, when you see them walking with Christ? When you see them growing to be more like Christ and to know that you have not labored in vain. Maybe you're a younger Christian here this evening. Do you know that you bring your leaders great joy and gladness whenever they see you walking with Christ, when they see you growing in your faith? It's for God's good pleasure, but it brings good pleasure to our leaders also. Ultimately, we want to live our lives for God, but as we do that, we also live our lives for God's people. And that ought to make us glad and to be able to rejoice with them. Paul sort of explains this a wee bit in verse 17. He does it there with the language of sacrifice. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Well, here Paul's taking us back to the Old Testament sacrifices and this idea of a drink offering. It was really that as somebody was bringing the main sacrifice, maybe a goat or a lamb, whatever it might be, that a a drink offering was poured over the top of it, maybe wine or something like that. And as the whole offering is burnt up, well, this wine adds like a pleasing aroma to the whole thing. On its own, the drink offering really isn't worth very much. But when added to the main sacrifice, it greatly complements and enhances what is being given. And Paul's saying here that as the Philippians work out their salvation, as they grow in likeness to Christ, as they persevere in the faith, as they die unto sin and live unto righteousness, that what they are doing is they are living their lives in worship to God. They are these living sacrifices. And all that Paul has done among them is serving to really complement and enhance that. And so that's what Paul wants to see. He wants to see them continue until that day of Christ. They are to keep persevering in sanctification. Not that they're perfect yet, nor will they be in this life. But one day God will complete the good work he has begun in them. And so he's calling them to strive to be what God is making them. And that's the same thing for us, to strive to be what God is making us. We're not perfect in this life, but we live in the hope one day we will be. But until then, we're not standing still. We're not stationary. And so we see how sanctification is so connected to our worship. And these two things really ought not to be divorced. Because our worship is not just what we do here on a Sunday. It doesn't end with the benediction at the end of the service. But our worship goes all throughout the week, Monday through the Friday, even on our Saturdays and back into the next Sunday as well. That we live our lives, as Paul calls the Philippians to here, as living sacrifices to God. That's what we thought about in our our call to worship and from Romans 12. We should be living sacrifices to God. All of life is worship. And as we are sanctified, as we grow in our holiness and our likeness to Christ, that worship becomes so much deeper and richer. But if we are just standing still with our worship, we're going to find it stagnating then. So let us persevere. Let us work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. We began with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Maybe an unfamiliar question, number 35. Keep it in mind. We'll maybe end with question one because most of us probably know that. What is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And it is as we worship, as we pursue sanctification, as we work out our salvation, we find ourselves glorifying God and enjoying him. These things meet together in our sanctification and cannot be divorced from it. And so it is by the grace of God, the power of his Holy Spirit that we grow every day in our likeness to Christ our Savior. This is our essential work. It empowers our witness. It enhances our worship. Us in Christ and his Spirit in us. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for these words to us this evening as we think of what it is to pursue holiness, to die to sin, to live to righteousness. Lord, it is a great thing and something that each of us lacks the strength to do alone. And so we thank you for the good work that you begin in your people. We thank you for the gift of your Spirit, for the work of your free grace. Lord, you call us to be who you are making us, knowing that one day we shall be made perfect, one day Christ shall return, and so we can labor on in the full confidence and assurance of the work that you are doing. We ask, O Lord, that we would not stand still, but as you have called us, so we would persevere, and so we would seek to grow ever and always in our likeness to Christ, our risen King and Saviour. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen.